0: Welcome to the Proust Questionnaire.
2: 35 questions giving us insight into what makes creative people tick. Hi, Uli. How are you?
0: I'm good in our lockdown, and so it's nice to see you on Zoom today. Hi.
2: It's nice to see you on Zoom, too. It makes us feel a little bit less like we're prisoners uh, in our own homes. And I'm excited about our interview today with Dr. Samantha Boardman, a wonderful psychiatrist, a wonderful human being, and I think she'll give such an interesting perspective to a lot of these questions on our show today. One of the things I really appreciate about Samantha, and one of the reasons I think she has such a valuable and unique voice in in psychiatry and psychology today, is that, as a psychiatrist, she places a real emphasis on positive thinking. so I remember her explaining to me the the first day we met that uh, so much of the the common practice in psychiatry is a patient goes in and talks about all of the things that are wrong with their lives, uh, but she was saying that just that The more you talk about all the things that are wrong with your life, and the more attention you put on them, the more ingrained the kind of misery around those uh, beliefs and behavior patterns becomes. And so, she, uh, after having already gotten her MD, she went back to the University of Pennsylvania for a master's um, to study with a man who um, has advanced this idea of called positive psychology, and encouraging psychologists and, and therapists and psychiatrists to encourage their patients also to make time to attend to and to think about the good things in their lives. You can find out more about her work on her blog. She's got a wonderful blog that's always very um, witty and interesting, but really maintains this perspective of, of positive psychology called positive prescription. And then she has a book from Penguin called Everyday Strong, How to Cultivate Resilience in the everyday, in moments of difficulty and challenge and disappointment and fear, like we're all living through now, I think, in this pandemic.
0: Right, Oh, so that's great that we have her right now, exactly when many people are trying to figure out how do you not dwell and obsess only on the negative. That's right. Looking forward to this conversation on Zoom. Sophie's gonna come up in a minute.
2: Can't wait. All right. Hi, Samantha Boardman. We're so happy to have you
1: on the podcast today.
0: Yes, good morning, Samantha. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So uh, we'll start out with um, the top of the uh, list. The question is uh, on the Poon's questionnaire. Samantha, what is your idea of perfect happiness?
1: Perfect happiness is a a psychiatrist. This is sort of a tough one to, to tackle, is the idea of we're trying to get away from perfection sometimes. And so I've been reading this book by Roske about delight and the idea of how can you sort of look for delight even on sort of dark days. And it's just sort of perfect. I started leafing through this before quarantine began, but how do you kind of, how do you be deliberate about delight how do you look for something good even on a bad day if it's the bird chirping or hearing you know sort of smelling the grass or smelling the rain just looking for these little moments of delight and clocking them and sharing them and i find that to be this sort of way to find sort of joy and and happiness even on sort of in weird times and we sometimes i think we have this Negativity bias always we're always looking for things that we're really good at seeing the stuff that makes us miserable and that sort of is what overshadows our experience So even if you can force yourself and be deliberate about delight and find that and I think even it might not be Perfect happiness, but you can find some imperfect happiness in that. Yeah. Thank you.
2: I I remember uh, Samantha one of the first times you and I met you were talking to me about your your interest as a psychiatrist in Kind of positive psychology and this idea that often an encounter with a with a shrink can tend to be maybe stereotypically uh, a lot about what's wrong and that you know every time I remember you saying to me that every time a patient comes in and just rehearses what's wrong it sort of deepens that belief and gives that belief more um, more purchase and that part of your work is to also encourage your patients to look for the positive is that an accurate uh, portrayal of yeah absolutely of and
1: kind of you know that's why after medical school and doing my psychiatry residency i went back to school to study sort of the science of health and wellness because i'd realized i'd gotten really good at misery and i <laughs> knew you know how to kind of you know kind of hone in on what the problems were and then kind of try to make them less bad and you know, there's so much more to health and mental health than than doing that. And positive psychology has a lot to say about that. And I just think, you know, for all of us in our everyday experience, if we're sort of veering towards that direction of negativity, and especially when we're sort of asking about that and, you know, I had a patient who who once fired me because she said, all we ever do is come in here and you tell me, like, let me talk about everything that's going wrong and how mm. bad, like, I, I have to think about before I walk in the door about all the things that, you know, made me unhappy this week. And we don't really talk about anything <laughs> else. And that's actually what kind of, you know, woke me up to think like, wow, I'm the misery queen. Like, maybe I need to sort of see the bigger picture here. Oh, that's so
2: great. Um the, with all due apologies then for that very thoughtful response. We do go in order uh in the for the of the questions that Proust answered in the 1890s. So I now have to ask you, what is your greatest fear?
1: <laughs> My greatest fear, I would say, is wasted time. Hmm. Just like doing stuff that doesn't matter and being good at things that don't really matter. Those sort of flashes in the pan of things that, you know. Maybe is it that tweet that gets retweeted and thinking like, oh <laughs> my gosh, I'm like so, you know, good at this. Those sort of short-term gratifications that ultimately deplete you. You know, it doesn't really matter. Yes, it feels good in the moment, but sort of in the bigger context and wasted time is something I, I think a lot about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
2: that's is- a very Proustian answer too, I would say, given that, you know, <laughs> in search of lost time also means in search of wasted time. and. Proust realizes throughout the book that the things that he's doing don't really matter. <laughs> yes. uh, and it takes 4,000 pages before he realizes that what he should be doing is writing a book. <laughs> so uh, maybe we'll talk more about that maybe uh, later about writing. But um, yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's a really, really good answer.
0: I think it's interesting. Amanda, what is the trait you most deplore in yourself?
1: I mean the the list was long, but I mean thinking about it, rumination. I think my tendency to sort of chew that cud and to have a hard time something sometimes letting something go. I hope I don't ruminate after this interview and think why did I say this or that. You know, sometimes just sort of that that looking back and 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 rehashing that ticker tape in one's mind that can be so hard to let go of. And I've been working on that for a lifetime.
0: What is the trait you most deplore in others?
1: Rumination, I would say, is something. And I think, especially those who will co ruminate with me, <laughs> me in my rumination rather than sort of, you know, waking me up to say, stop, you know, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, yeah, the two together aren't, aren't healthy at all.
2: Which living person do
1: you most admire? I think anybody who can sort of change direction or change their mind or sort of change their past or their narrative I think we're all telling telling stories about ourselves and we can get very attached to that narrative and I have a friend called Marjorie Gubelman who sort of grew up in, in a you know very privileged way and she ended up sort of Making candles and she had this candle business and when she was 40 she just she realized she'd gotten divorced and and how like tough like, That it just this wasn't for her She needed to figure out another way to actually really make a living and she needed to at that point And she went back to school and she went to what's called scratch academy and she became a DJ. <laughs> And I just admire this change of direction and this sort of embrace and this fearlessness to reimagine herself in this completely different role and that she was sort of, you know, it was hard to enter this world of, of, of just a, that, that she had not inhabited before and she's actually, I think, found so much life and vitality in it and brought so much to it. And uh, even in quarantine, she is DJing away and she does DJ <laughs> from, from her apartment. But that I, I really admire that ability to be able to sort of change course and change your mind. That's fantastic. And she's had a lot of success, right, as a DJ? Yes. Yes. And who knew in Scratch Academy, she went back and she's got this whole like DJ turntable and she's, you know, a pro at it and she gets invited to to DJ all these different events. And it's a a way for her to kind of, I think, really embody what she always loved. Apparently, she'd done this a little bit back in college. And uh, I think Mm -hmm. we often forget that we can actually change course. And she really embodied that for me. Yeah. What is your greatest extravagance? It's a, I put cream in my coffee and nothing's (laughs) going to change that. And it's every morning and not even half and half. I want the full cream. All right. Why not start the day that way? Absolutely.
0: What is your current state of mind?
1: So I'm very interested in the, in the words we use when we ask people like, how are you feeling? Because in English we don't have, I think enough words to, to, to describe our emotions. And when you can describe your emotions, it's, it helps you, you know, put, some, put some sort of boundaries around them and I think be able to understand them better and then take action as a result of them. And so one of the things I like to do in my practice is help people sort of find the words for how they feel and not just good or bad and i think german my husband's german and he uses this word all the time that i just love and y- you could pronounce it better than i could sch- Schweinehund, yeah. and that that german <laughs> expression for when you're feeling really lazy um even though you have a lot of things to do so i would say that is my current <laughs> state of mind right now <laughs> is that the correct translation is that how you would?
0: yeah it's actually it's the it's that inner, it's the inner pig dog that you have to overcome to do anything. I know it really well. When you're an athlete, you have to, if you don't want to do something, you have to actually overcome this resistance or this voice within you. Yeah. So really, I haven't heard that word in a while. <laughs> it's, but he
1: uses it a lot, my husband. <laughs> and I, I just, I feel yeah. that you, the Germans have a lot to offer us in terms of, you know, descriptive emotions and experiences that just <laughs> English fails us, you know, <laughs> we just don't have the words.
0: Um, what do you consider the most overrated virtue?
1: I would say authenticity. I think the idea that you always have to be yourself because sometimes I think that's a terrible idea. If I'm myself, sometimes that you'll sort of see the worst version of me. If I'm myself, I think most of us can sort of be our lowest selves at points. And I think when we can sort of think, you know, what would somebody I admire do right now? Or, you know, we are sort of works in progress, and there there isn't necessarily a true self. Mm-hmm. Or maybe um, if you're going to the Socratic out of values, I'd say pride. But I think just in as a general, you know, <laughs> sort of value the true, the, the idea um, of being a true self.
2: I, any idea? I'm sorry of what?
1: I'm um, just the idea of being authentic. People always tell us yeah. to be authentic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and probably better if we're sincere.
2: Okay, interesting. All right, then, on what occasion do you lie? Well, whenever I'm late. (laughs) (laughs) And what kind of lies do you tell when you're
1: late, Samantha? (laughs) Elaborate ones. It's, a, you know, the <laughs> traffic, the bridge, the train. There's so many good ones you can choose from. And I find it to be really frustrating when somebody's late and they don't have an excuse. You, this is a moment to be creative and imaginative. So I actually resent it if somebody just says sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm, a excuse. I'm uh, On the previous question on authenticity, I'll send you the link to a book by Lionel Trilling, who was a Great literary critic in the sixties and seventies, and he has a book, Sincerity and Authenticity, and he explains how authenticity became a value in the modern age and why it's problematic. This idea that we're supposed to be actually true to ourselves, which means there's a kind of constancy that doesn't allow for change. It's a really interesting reflection. He offers in the early seventies. It comes out of this sort of literary criticism, sort of coming into its own. I think in America, it's a really beautiful book.
1: I, you know, I, I've read, I haven't read all of it, but I've read, you know, the, the sort of first essay in there. And I yeah. do think, I think it was based on some lectures he had given at Harvard, though. Yes. And it's sort of that, the misreading of to thine own self be true. Yeah. That, you know, that it was really maybe more for the projected self, the 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 person you want to be to your community and sort of to your audience more than maybe this idea, this fixed idea of the true self.
0: And I, right. I, that definitely resonates. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. What do you most dislike about your appearance?
1: <laughs> Where to begin? But I think my uncanny ability to resemble a gopher. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we and don't we, see it right now. We are on Zoom. We don't quite see it, but
1: <laughs> no. When we meet in the, the flesh, time. it will come to you. I won't even need to remind you.
2: <laughs> and you said your sister is the one who came up with that when 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 <laughs> you were when you were small.
1: Well, she called me both shrimp. And that I was sort of, I looked like a gopher. So, you know, and embraces didn't help.
2: (laughs) Which living person, Samantha, do you most despise?
1: Well, I was raised not to despise or, or, you know, hate, but I'd say anybody who cheats at golf.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. There's a few people probably (laughs) alive right now. What is the quality you most like in a man?
1: Probably, I'd say good hair and open-mindedness.
2: In that order? Yes.
1: <laughs> what
2: What is the quality you most like in a woman?
1: I'd say good hair and
2: open-mindedness. <laughs> so your equal opportunity in your, uh, your preferences.
1: Definitely.
0: <laughs> Does it have to be the good hair? Does the person think he has good hair or do you have to assess that?
1: Oh, no, it's up to me.
2: Okay, okay. <laughs> my, oh God, <laughs> then it's a miracle you and I are friends, maybe because I'm more open-minded uh, to make up for the horribleness of my hair.
1: Well, no, I have terrible hair today, so I'm just I don't really do admire it and all. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you don't see it, but they enough.
0: Which words or phrases do you most overuse?
1: I say all the time, moving forward. You know, sort of moving forward, You know, rather than maybe as a psychiatrist, I, I, you know, it seems like heresy, but I think sometimes dwelling too much on the past and sort of how things were or should have, could have, would have sort of type thinking Mm -hmm. and sort of the moving forward, what are you going to do? What's Mm -hmm. next?
0: What or who is the greatest love of your life?
1: Uh, Definitely my husband. And then I'd say my, my children and my fur children as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> two <animals. laughs>
2: and two of you, right? Two human children, two canine, oh, two, two furs. Yeah, two furs. And you're all together in confinement right now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The best. If um, Oh, sorry. When and where were you happiest?
1: I would say, I think anywhere that I feel at home. And I've always tried to think of that as more of a, a feeling than a place. So I think when I've got sort of the fur children and the children and my husband and my stepchildren too, that, that that sort of feels like home. Yeah.
2: Which talent that you
1: don't have would you most like to have? To tap dance and to sing next to Hugh Jackman, obviously. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: he's pretty Are good at that. <laughs>
2: Are are you making any uh, step progress toward that uh, those goals, Sam? During confinement? Yes, if you
1: count TikTok um, as a lowbrow version with my daughter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I think uh, I I heard this Hugh Jackman actually when he wants to just chill out, he goes to the tap studio, puts on headphones, and taps for an hour or two or something like that. He does it by himself all the time for fun. Yeah. So wow, I
1: think when. I think seeing him perform there is such exuberance and joy in the in the performance that I think you sort of it really is an elevating awe experience though that i you know i I had been to one one show of his, and i honestly think you sort of walk out wanting to be a better person you know when you have those sort of experiences. In in sort of a venue like that, and it's a shared experience with you know with lots of other people that sadly we've all been deprived of recently. That I you know that you you do sort of you're a little kinder, maybe a little nicer, a little sort of more forgiving. And I can't help but think if we had more of that in our lives, we would maybe all be better better people.
0: We'll be we'll be sure to send this to you in case he's casting for his next tap part. Oh
1: yes, yes, please tell him I'm ready.
0: If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be?
1: Um, I would say probably my um, my ability to like let go, needing to be right. You know, sometimes I can't let go of that. It's like a dog with a bone. That sort of that need sometimes for the last word. And I'm working on it, but yeah, I'd like to be able to just sort of walk away from that and not sort of come up with, you know, better arguments and sort of more evidence why I am correct.
2: I I read some Buddhist self-help book many years ago that uh, said that we all often face the choice whether we want to be right or be happy. Mm -hmm. And. I do think I I think about that all the time because I I love having the last word and being right is so satisfying on kind of a, a sick and negative level. But the idea that that's actually opposed to being happy was was news to me and it's something
1: that stuck with me. Do you see that in your patients also, or absolutely? You know, and I, I do think it sort of does. It does sort of hang on to the past also in that sort of way of sort of needing to be right and, and sort of clinging to something, and it's when you do let go of it, it's so liberating, you know, in those moments where you can just sort of let something go and not feel, you know, that you, even with, when reflection sort of, there's this sort of fine line between, I think, reflection and rumination. Mm -hmm. And that you can sort of veer into that darker place and wanting to rehash something in your mind or even with somebody so you can get to the other side of it. And that's, you know, that, that myth, that, 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 that's a mythic place, I think. And so when you can, Mm learn to let go. And the moments, you know, that I have provide, I do, I, I am much happier.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: What do you consider your greatest achievement? I would say getting over imposter syndrome, you know, that idea that, um, just sort of wait till they like, pull the curtain back and realize that, you know, it's all been a mistake and I don't belong here. And that's something that, Took a long time and and still of course that sort of is there that idea of wait. Do I deserve this? Do they really realize? Um, But that that's sort of I think for a lot of young women, too That's a big issue of just sort of feeling that, you know, maybe there was a mistake The reason that I'm here is somebody made an error somehow or that, you know, I don't belong
0: Yeah Yeah. Um, Samantha, if you were to die and come back as a person or a thing what? Or who would it be?
1: It would be my dog Panda, who's a rescue, <laughs> and um, she leads this sort of remarkably, sort of guilt-free life, but also purposeful uh, every day. And <laughs> she has this sort of maddening ability to fall asleep anywhere. So, uh, it would just unequivocally that it would be Panda. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you most like to live? I think anywhere by the sea. The yeah. ocean always sort of makes me happy, and I, it just, gosh, it's such a privilege to be able to see an ocean or any body of water.
0: Yeah. What is your most treasured possession?
1: I'd say health, and um, mm. I'd say my physical and mental health would be mm. those, those two.
0: Yeah, especially, and probably, especially right now during this pandemic, when it's not to be taken for granted, right? Well, no. Yeah, you know, what do you regard as the lowest depth of misery?
1: Sort of along those lines, probably. I'd say getting to the bottom of a tub of ice cream by myself. You know, I, I think the, those moments of like that. If you're going to do that, you've got to. You better be doing it with somebody else. And I do think that sense of just sort of not being alone, but loneliness and. um not feeling loved or connected and, you know, any tub of ice cream will taste better with somebody else too. And I think those sort of shared experiences and I, the idea of, of that by yourself, that sort of makes me terribly sad. Yeah.
0: I, I really like this answer, but I, when, I, when you said it, I was so literal. I thought, oh, the sadness is that the ice cream has run out now. <laughs>
1: Is that a quarantine response to you? Yes,
0: think? it is. Because what else am I going to do but eat it by myself? What's the right. I do think it's really it's misery when it's over. There's <laughs> no
2: <laughs> Well, also that just speaks to the the sort of multiplicity, the endless variety of the answers that these questions can generate. Uli, I'm immediately thinking, well, it's easy for you just to be sad that the ice cream has run out because you can eat ten tubs of ice cream alone and still be <laughs> A, a six foot six rail um, Greek god. It's it's really unfair, um, <laughs> Samantha. But what
0: I is just your... learned that, but you are know six foot six and alone. So hey, <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy but to...
2: more ice cream for you, uh, Samantha. What is your favorite occupation?
1: I'd say being a psychiatrist and you know an amateur sleuth. And I think that sort of what I do is it sort of combines the two. So. They're essentially the same thing, yeah.
0: What is your most marked characteristic, which we think means what do other people notice about you first?
1: That I like to talk a lot. I would say that I am a chatty Cathy and <laughs> my husband would definitely say that. And probably, you know, we don't know each other well yet, but <laughs> Caroline <laughs> would probably not in agreement. So I would say that's
0: my number one. Um, <laughs> What do you most value in your friends?
1: Well, probably saying yes" when I say "Can I take a bite?" would be the, the what I sort of just it, it sort of a mark of, of generosity and sort of shared experience and um, sort of togetherness. <laughs> Who are your favorite writers? Well, that's easy. I would say Caroline Webber. Ah! Caroline, I loved Caroline's book on Marie Antoinette so much so that I was furious with Caroline in the last chapter because I didn't want, I wanted sort of the ending to change. Okay. That I, I was sort of Sorry reimagining a chapter that Caroline could write that would sort of have her saved. It was just so beautifully written. And I go back to it. I just gave it to a friend while, while um, you know, in quarantine because I knew she would love it. And she's just emailed me back saying how much she, she does. But
2: oh, thanks. You know,
1: really sort of capture... also, it was, it's like the essence of a woman, and also how she found sort of power in, in through her dressing to assert herself and to reclaim what so, and so much of that had been lost in her life. And I think fashion often gets dismissed as something that sort of is meaningless or sort of icing on the cake, and, and um, sort of putting it at the center of, of Marie Antoinette's life and power made it, it was just extraordinarily interesting and moving as well. And I wish Caroline would write just sort of a, a different ending. <laughs> and I won't pretend as much.
2: That would be a fun. That would be a fun thought exercise, actually. And yeah, you and I would both feel better about that. I think I've told you before that I actually cried while writing her execution scene. Yeah, and my first husband, who uh, was not a particularly kind man, I remember popped his head in the door while I was weeping and writing her death scene, and kind of angrily said to me. You've known this was going to happen all along. What's your problem now? But it's still sad, even when you know it's coming. Um, who is your hero or heroine of fiction, or television, or film? What what fictional, uh, imaginary characters do you do you like the best?
1: Well, I actually will go back to a children's book for this, and it's Charlotte's Web. Oh. And, you know, everybody talks about Wilbur, and you know, <laughs> the sort of amazing pig. You know, when yes, the book, it's Charlotte who sort of you know, who's so extraordinary and filling her web with these words. And it's so moving and so beautifully written. In the end, I was in floods of tears I, as well as I just had reread it to my children. And you know, sort of Charlotte explaining to Wilbur when you know, you, you can do something for others that you can sort of well, that's can make you know, just the mundane, sort of trivial, sort of you know, life worthwhile. And it's, you know, but she never gets any credit for it either. She's sort of, you know, forgotten, not not by Wilbur, but by others. And <laughs> when I had recently seen that movie, The Wife, about the Nobel uh, Prize winning author, that it made me think again of of, of of Charlotte and Wilbur. I thought, well, maybe this was sort of the <laughs> prequel to, to The
2: Wife. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's right. The um, My husband, Paul, who um, whom you know, uh, uh, loves the quotation at the end of that book. Uh, it's not. It, it's not easy to find uh, a, someone who's a good friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both. Yes, yes. That is. It, it's such a beautiful, beautiful quotation. Oh, I love that. That's your your hero of of fiction. Do you have any others, or really, Charlotte takes the cake.
1: You know, I also think Lily Bart was always sort of his oh like. That I've you know the the tragedy and also like the, sort of the heartbreak and somewhat you know misunderstood as well and and just that, sort of that opening scene when she's sort of in that tableau vivant and and it sort of it's sort of when she's really sort of dancing sort of on this precipice of of, of this decline into what she becomes and I've I've always sort of it, it actually admired. And maybe she's a sort of complicated character to admire, but there's a certain sort of emotional stamina that she brought to. And, and um, I think her unwillingness to, to sort of become what people wanted her to be, even in that moment that um, I, I was always moved by. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, House of Mirth, I, one of the one of the greatest and most devastating
2: books, too. I mean, you feel oh, for her so much at the end
0: which historical figure do you most identify with?
1: Just, I mean, this is uh, sort of emulating, but I I would say Nellie Bly, who was a a journalist and for the the New York world. And she, you know, was intrepid and she had got, she went in, in the, 1870s into a lunatic asylum called Blackwell's Island. Uh, it was it was lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island that's now Roosevelt Island, and she was feigning madness so she could write this expose on what it was like to be inside. And she was there for about three or four, I think three or four weeks. And you know she she sort of acted mad, and then the doctors wouldn't let her out, and it really. Was the reason that that it ended up closing um, that that asylum on on Blackwell's Island and just exposing just the terrible conditions of it and everyone sort of packed together and that the asylum was originally opened with the best intentions and is a place for what they called moral treatment and you know the vision was was not realized they sort of ended up you know with way too many with overcrowding and many other issues. And I think a sort of unhappy husband could banish his wife to Blackwell's Island, to the lunatic asylum, or you could even threaten to your children, like, if you don't behave, I will send you off there. But and it was no. people knew a lot about it. They would even, the equivalent of page six in the New York Post would cover, you know, there would be sort of gossipy items on some of the characters who lived in the asylum. And it was a sort of fascinating place, but then it turned very dark in the late sort of, in the like around, I guess, like after it been open for about 40 years and Nellie Bly really exposed it and was the reason it closed. And I just sort of admired her, um, her like sort of courage to do that. Yeah. And, and did I'd she, love and to
0: did she write a particular book about Blackwell Island, about this particular she book? She
1: wrote an, an expose and I think um, in the New York world about it. and um, And that, you know, was I think just, you know, really just h- helped the world see how devastating the conditions were there. And it, it sort of shuddered about within two years.
0: What an That's amazing year. Yeah.
1: Incredible.
2: Who are your heroes or heroines in real life?
1: I'd say any three-legged dog. I'm oh. Just always in- oh! Oh! I saw one the other day and and, you know, they just, it doesn't get them down. But in real life, I think the idea of like people who heroes are, are so it's such a tricky subject because you were sort of making them not human. And sometimes, you know, I have a friend, Angela Duckworth, who wrote a book called Grit. And I'm in the middle of writing this book that's torturing me. And I'd always assumed Angela being brilliant like you is that she was that it was also easy and everything had come really easily to her. And she sent me back her just proposal. And it was this sort of flimsy proposal. And she said, you see, like, this was actually really like, it's really not good. This is what it came from. And I don't, you know, she'd sort of dismissed it before as like, Oh no, nothing. And I just imagined like her book had, had just, you know, flowed out of her over the course of a weekend or something. Mm -hmm. And for her actually the, the generosity in sharing this, you know, mediocre proposal and just, you know, giving that to me that, that it, it, Took her in away from being sort of my hero up here, but to being a hero who who was you know it's so much more, so much more is possible. I think when your heroes live live you know with their feet on the ground, yeah, yeah, who are just who are here to help, yeah, That's yeah.
0: So, that is so nice. Uh, what are your favorite names?
1: In terms of like actual names, like just a word for something I love is Aurora Borealis. Yes. <laughs> it just is my favorite. word imaginable i've never seen it i would love to see those northern lights but i love that word i wish i could have called one of my kids or dogs that
2: (laughs) i don't know well or one like the daughter could be aurora and the son could be borealis
1: maybe yes you see i sort of have a complicated relationship with names because i was named after this sort of phlegmatic basset hound who was known for a, <laughs> it's, sort of, its bald patch on its stomach that dragged across the floor. Um, <laughs> so, bad hair. It's somewhat complicated, I think, my relationship with names. Alongside, I think my parents were influenced by the dog, and they were also watching Bewitched at the time a lot. And Oh, yeah. You know, they clearly didn't have much of an imagination for Samantha, but...
0: <laughs> it's... A, it's- it's a good name, and it's, have you lived up though to your the models of your name, do you think, in your parents' imagination, to the bathroom? I mean,
1: being able to sort of twitch my nose, and I don't have a bald spot on my stomach yet, but, um, <laughs> yes. Yet? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, what is it that you most dislike? I would say self-immersion, you know, um, self-focus. I think we live sometimes in this world where, you know, there's so much is around sort of self-help and um, putting yourself first all the time. And it's sort of self-help gone wild sometimes. And this can, you know, sort of green light narcissistic behavior at times. And um, I find that to be a very difficult, it's difficult for uh, to be around other people. I see that sometimes, you know, in in patients who sort of feel like they're, they're doing their best by always sort of prioritizing themselves and, and sort of, you know, I need to put myself first in that way. And they're thinking that self-immersion that also can turn into sort of rumination when it becomes, you know, how they felt about something, how they experienced something. And I think it can be this sort of narrow box that I think that we can inhabit when self-immersion is, um, is sort of embraced and allowed for and even green lighted in sort of culturally.
0: Is there a way as a psychiatrist, sorry, when as a psychiatrist, when people come in, uh, they presumably come in to work on themselves as one would say. And how do you actually turn that into something that is not just more of a kind of self-obsession and kind of a sort of spinning one's wheels?
1: Yeah, no, and it's a really sort of good, like sort of way of seeing it. And, and people often come in with, you know, some sort of, you know, some major, we call it like a chief complaint or something. But even when it's not um, about another person, so much of their existence, I think we have to sort of see them in relation to the, you know, the world they inhabit. And it always is about others too. And um, I think having that sort of more other-oriented experience and even, you know, we know kind of one of the best sort of antidotes for depression and anxiety isn't self-care, it's other care. You know, being able to do something for somebody else. We're seeing that right now, a lot of, you know, that ability to, you know, take care of an elderly neighbor or, you know, even if it's, you know, clapping at seven o'clock for healthcare workers, just doing something that isn't just so self focused because, like, self focus can just really take you down that spiral of negativity. And when you only see, that um like sort of you know yourself is the center and you're just fixated on your emotions your experience and that incapacity like when you can't see it from someone else's perspective and from someone else's point of view and one of the best ways to get people out of that is you ask them to self-distance not socially distance but Mm self-distance you know like imagine you were a fly on the wall imagine um you know, you were, what would would your friends say about this? Like, you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes. And it's amazing the clarity we sometimes get when we can sort of lift ourselves out of self-immersion and, you know, see it through like fresh eyes.
0: Mm. Mm. That's, I like this a lot. It's really interesting to sort of say that there, even what you just said that we know, I guess in psychiatry that you're being helped by helping others. Because that isn't quite how you think about it, sort of this this self-help industry and sort of the new age industries to say, oh, you know, this obsessive focus will make you better. And you're saying, no, actually, that's not what makes you necessarily better, whatever better means.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I just think actually, if you can sort of maybe make someone else a little better, that yeah. that is, it, it, it's much more meaningful. And, you know, even there have been studies of asking people, you know, here's some, you know, or $20, spend it on yourself or spend it on someone else. And people actually assume that spending it on themselves will make them feel better when it really, it's the opposite if they spend it on somebody else or just, you know, the idea, again, we spoke about wasted time at the beginning. When we lend somebody a hand, we do something for somebody else, you actually, you know, sort of not only, you feel a sense of self-efficacy. And I think that ability to be of use to somebody else is, is, is helpful for them and helpful for you.
0: Yeah. Uh, what is your greatest regret?
1: I think forgetting to ask a good question or not not sort of having you know that regret that will sometimes come. What's that French expression like the yeah. the Escalier, yeah. yeah. right?
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so the, we, the joke you remember on the way out on the stairs down and you think, oh, this is the comeback I could have had, but I didn't, I didn't use it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So is there like a way to say that with like sort of the question of L'Escalier, like the, you know, yeah. it is the, this, you know, when you think, oh, I met this person, I wish I had asked them this, or in the, because it often, it's usually sort of, you know, tied to this idea of like, I failed to connect with somebody, yeah. you know, the, everybody knows something that, you know, that's interesting and that we don't know. And that idea that maybe I just failed to ask the right question in some way that will sort of, you know, stick with me and and quite quite a lot, actually.
2: Really? And is it, would you say that kind of across the board? Is it more in your practice that this regret comes up or just in your daily life, your social life?
1: I'm just like interested in questions, you know, that that, like, how can we... What are the the right questions? I mean, I think Rilke, you, you, speak of, um you study Rilke. It, like, how do you love the questions? And we shut down so much to questions and questioning, and you know, even not just questioning others, but questioning ourselves and our behavior and our sort of automatic responses to things or to a person. You know, that how many times have I maybe jumped to a conclusion about? So, you know, I've been seated next to somebody and sort of thinking, oh, I know everything there is to know about this person, probably, and they've hardly opened their mouth. And sort of thinking, assuming I know the end of the movie, what they might tell me, and and that failure of imagination on my part to ask the right questions, to have a different experience, and, and to, to sort of connect with somebody in an interesting new way. And, you know, I think even with familiar relationships, with people we don't know, with, with patients, there's often, I think, questions that can help us frame you know, frame an issue and see it differently. Mm. And it's very, you know, we sort of habituate and we get sort of stuck in, you know, ways we do things. And there's, there's good reason for that. And we are sort of cognitive misers. Like we are not always sort of generous with the way we approach others and ourselves. And I guess how to, I think questions help us tap into that more that cognitive generosity. Yeah. That's, you
2: know, Oh, yeah.
1: sorry.
2: Oh, I was just, you know, Sorry. Um, there's, a, there's a lot in Proust about habit with a capital H and hearing and Proust is not negative about a lot of things in particular, but he really has some harsh words to say about habit. And he says that basically that kind of what you're calling cognitive laziness helps me understand it better. If we assume that we already know what the room looks like when we walk into it, if we assume that we already know what we're going to get out of the conversation with the person at dinner, we fail to see what's actually happening, what's actually there. And so to the artist, the biggest enemy he says is habit because the artist's job is to help people see the world with new eyes. And um, the word habit with a capital H has never really done it for me in in reading Proust, but this idea of kind of cognitive laziness or a failure to ask questions uh, reframes that in uh, what I think is a really productive way and gets gets more at, at what Bruce was talking about
1: well and I think maybe that sort of art you know can help us and you know books literature can sort of just help us sometimes see things a little bit differently and maybe you know see the world with fresher eyes than than we're used to seeing them we're seeing them just through a new lens because you know there is I think an a Reason evolution sort of, you know, maybe we couldn't always be sort of handling novelty It would be maybe too overwhelming all the time but that failure to 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 reimagine alter you know to imagine alternatives to any reaction we have the sort of reflexes Reflexive responses we have to maybe how somebody looks or you know what their profession is or even to We don't we completely we have this sort of blindness how we fail to see it in ourselves and There are those wonderful experiments they've done where they ask You to watch a group. There's a four people wearing black four people wearing white and you ask they ask you to sort of follow the people in. I think White tossing a ball back and forth and count how many times they do it and most people get it right It's like 13 times or something and then the end of it They say well, did you see the gorilla and while you were counting there was a, you know, person in a life-size gorilla suit who's walked (laughs) across the frame, like, beaten his chest and walked on. And about 70% of people fail to see it. Like, we fail to see the gorilla in our lives because you're busy counting. You know, so that... the blindness that you know what what are we missing and i think that's sort of what gets back to the idea of the, the questions is what are we not seeing like how many gorillas have passed that maybe I, I didn't see or you know that i forgot to because i was so focused on that one i was just focused on the balls i didn't see the
0: gorilla yeah or in a question we're focused on getting an answer and resolving something and moving on but there are many things actually by asking a question and really Trusting that you 'll hear something unexpected is very unsettling because that would mean you genuinely have a question rather than can you just confirm what I think you're going to say
1: that's Yes, no exactly, and rather like you know you are you just asking the question to sort of further the conversation are you are you are you listening to the response you're just you know sort of doing it to because that's the sort of the role we play so yeah, and sort of then you can engage in those sort of deeper conversations and, and, and you know, even, even debates that, you know, not trying to change somebody's mind, but trying to actually hear their point of view that, that you know, I think we sort of lost that ability sometimes for that type of dialogue.
0: I think, I think children are sometimes good. Both, you can ask little children and you can ask the, anything you kind of want. And little children sometimes ask you in a way without thinking they'll know the answer. So you can say, so you say something like, oh, I'm going home. And they would say, why? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, <what? laughs> so they sort of make you explain what you're actually doing or why are you carrying this in your bag? And you're like, you have to actually answer to make the whole universe make sense to them. So I like this kind of, they actually ask with this naivete and say, why aren't you not carrying this in your backpack? And you're sort of thinking, wait, what? <laughs> so this, I know. Do, do something totally new because they don't, they don't take for granted that this is the way to do it. There may be other ways of doing
1: it. Yeah, no, that's, and there's this um, Ellen Langer at Harvard, I think she was the first tenured um, female professor in psych, Psychology there and she says people would come to her sometimes like couples after they've been married for you know 50 years and say, you know, we're getting divorced I just can't stand the way, you know, he always does this way well, He reads the newspaper and then you know, she can't stand the way he's like then he burps and then whatever it is And then huh. she said but nobody's ever come to her and said, you know I'm just really sick of my dog or I'm really sick of my plant you know even or i'm really sick of my child and because we're we're always looking for a sort of novelty and something different in our plants or our dogs or you know our kids but with especially like with our partners and people we're sort of most familiar with our sort of predicting brains go to that place of you know maybe there's something there's an illusion of safety in that that we know the answer but that ultimately people are so unknowable you know Mm -hmm. and we can not you know the idea that sort of conceit that we have An idea of who they are and what they're gonna do and it actually really sort of takes I think away some of the joy and that discovery of our You know of of our world
2: Yeah, even the world that's closest to us. Uh, My husband last night really surprised me because he quoted Sort of subtly and without indicating that he was about to be quoting something. He quoted a Dolly Parton song to me (laughs) and My husband, who's an economist and kind of, as he would put it, you know, an old white guy, I had no idea. I know he loves music, but I had no idea that he was familiar with Dolly Parton's back catalog. And we both just roared. And this was kind of, you know, a meal where we both knew we were going to go back to work and we both had sort of a long day and we're tired. And and when he did this, it was such a burst of newness. Like, are, are you the man I married that you're quoting yeah. an obscure Dolly Parton song? It, it was really a good instance of that, that, you know, we've been together not 50 years, seven years, but I thought I knew him well enough to know that I couldn't expect that of him, and I was wrong.
1: That's amazing. Do you remember what it was, what line it was from? Yeah, it was, the,
2: it, it was that um, the Dolly Parton song, Coat of Many Colors. And where she talks about growing up in Appalachia and they don't have much money. And so her mom makes her this coat of many colors that she thinks is so beautiful. And she wears it to school and the kids all make fun of her. And Paul quoted it in the context of calling me farm girl because I've been doing nothing but gardening since we've been up here. And I was saying something about the garden. And he said, well, yeah, you know, and then your mama made you that coat and the kids didn't like it. And it was just so unexpected i hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, it's mine, Lily. I apologize. I let my... Um, all right. Uh, Samantha, how would you like to die?
1: Very old. And um, I think with a good book in my hand and a heartbeat at my feet, which oh. would be, I think, how Edith Warden described her dogs. But I, 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 that, that always sort of warms my heart lovely
0: that's the expression a heartbeat at my feet yes oh that is so nice i love that um samantha so, what is your
1: motto i'd say it probably comes from my mother and it's make yourself useful mm-hmm. yeah i whenever i you know i was never allowed to say that i was bored as a child it was sort of like a four-letter word and her answer was always go and make yourself useful you know go and do something, and you know I'd have to go like weed the garden or pick the pebbles out of the drain. but that sort of sense of you know doing something that's feels you know that's keeps you like you feel like you're adding value, you're doing something that's purposeful, and yes, the weeds are going to grow back. but I got really good at weeding then, and you know, you have that sense of efficacy and competence even, and that I think can solve like a lot of um those sort of mental ghettos we can inhabit in our mind if you can make yourself
0: useful. Do you think right now, do you have anything, because a lot of people I think are in their lockdown and are looking for ways to be useful. Do you have any, anything you're doing or any ideas for people? How do you become useful when you're locked or sheltered in place in your home?
1: You know, I think there are, there are so many, like, you know, within, you know, your, the way you're confined, if it is just like little things for the people you're with, what can you do that might be useful to them? But I think people are getting so creative right now and making themselves useful if it's like slipping the note under a door of a neighbor saying, hey, I'm going to CVS. Can I pick something up for you? Even, you know, we've started doing, um, you know, writing letters for city meals on wheels to for the recipients. My, I have my kids doing that just so they 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 deliver meals daily to the the volunteers do. To, to homebound elderly New Yorkers, but the idea of them also receiving a letter because now they're not able to have those personal contacts. Mm-hmm. So having a nice letter that's sort of part of, you know, maybe their, their meal package. And just kind of, you know, if it is washing the car or washing the dog or really, I think, especially doing something that feels like it might be of value to someone else, like if it's picking up the phone and calling, you know, their grandparent or... I think mean, every day, like kind of what are you doing for somebody else right now? And, um, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, friends who are alone. And are there ways you can just connect with them or just, you know, reach out, say hi, share something interesting with them that um, might be like a sort of a sense of time well spent and connected to sort of to other to others. And, and not to go back to Emily Dickinson, but I guess that sense of like maybe people are feeling like they are in the attic, but, you know, I think there are ways and and she was, I I guess, I gather more of a woman of the world than, than I thought of her. Um, But how can you sort of be more deliberate about connecting? Because, we, I think, feel like tumbleweeds so often in our lives. Like I always felt the tumbleweed effect, like there's so much that's happening that we've like lost control over it. And I think when we're deliberate about how we spend our time and we're deliberate about our relationships and deliberate about how we're adding value or deliberate about how we're learning and deliberate about being open-minded, just because you might not naturally be that way, or you're not in the mood to be that way, doesn't mean that, um, that you can't be that way. And, People often say, like, be yourself or, you know, but I think it's when you can sort of, you know, override yourself and not in like suppressing your emotions way, but you actually feel much better as a result of it. And I think that's that yeah. sense of being deliberate about your vitality is really important. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's such a helpful thing for for us to keep in mind, I think, during this time when there is so much hand-wringing and, oh, Tara, the, the world is in a terrible place and we can't do anything about it. It's it's nice to have you uh, reorient our thinking towards the things that we can do, however small may maybe. Um, Samantha, we've added one question and one question only to the original Proust questionnaire from the 1890s, which is, who would you most like to hear Answer the questions on this podcast. It could be somebody, you know, somebody you don't know Ideally, it's somebody alive because Willie and I are always looking for uh, uh, new ideas for whom to invite on our show
1: How about Nicholas Christakis who is the author of blueprint and he's at Yale and he runs mm-hmm. a lab on Actually sort of, you know on, on social behavior and contagion of behaviors. He wrote a wonderful book called contagion I think around 2011 or 12 And he's so thoughtful, I think, around so many sort of issues and so many sort of ways we can think about quarantine. But also Blueprint is sort of highlights how... Humans are wired. We have this extraordinary capacity, yes, for sort of violence and ugliness, but also we're sort of wired for goodness and connection and sort of generosity and sharing. And he goes through all these sort of fascinating examples of it throughout history and. uh, I think that that would be a sort of, he'd be fascinating to hear from, not to mention his expertise on contagion and human behavior and how it sort of spreads through social networks and how you can use AI to influence sort of social networks. So I just think he he would sort of be fascinating on many
0: levels. That is a great suggestion. Thank you. That's a great idea. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: No. Thank you so much um, for... um, answering these questions, I'm really kind of inspired, actually, to think that there's ways to turn one's self-absorption into some <laughs> to redirect it in a different way, and to redefine this. It's really been great to listen to you and have these answers.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Thank you for sort of making me making me think. And I think, actually, these questions sort of do lift one out of self-immersion. I, I wonder what it could be like, actually, it's like to sort of prescribe these questions to some patients and just have them, you know, just sort of Think about what matters, you know, and, and how a lot of these really do sort of cut to the core of what matters to you or how you want to be living your life. Um, and it's in, in the living, you know, of it, not like sort of in the daily way you live your life. And I wonder if there's a way to sort of think of a study one could do to see if that is a way to sort of lift people out of self-immersion.
2: Oh, well, if you try that experiment, uh, we would love to have you back on to talk to us about the results. That's fascinating. And I also, uh, it's, it's so interesting what you're saying, because I think a lot of the time when we talk to people we know about the Proust questionnaire, some people who are sort of private say, oh, but I wouldn't want to answer those personal questions or I don't like to talk so much about myself. And yet, as you say, paradoxically, the effect of these questions seems to be Taking one out of self immersion and not reinforcing it, um, and I don't know why that is. Is it just because the questions are 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 deep or are probing or not the ones we're usually asking during our daily life? Why do you think that is? Just yeah, I think you know
1: that when you when you're sort of you're forced to pause with these questions and sort of think and am I actually you know am I living my life that in a way that reflects this? And you know one of sort of I think the greatest you know, ways we can build resilience is, you know, when we do embody actually what we sort of care about in our values. And one thing I actually like sort of exercise I have patients sometimes do is write down how they spend, you know, how they spend, you know, their time and then juxtapose it with like what they value most. And oftentimes, you know, the 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 way they spend in their time, like, oh, I get, you know, I end up sort of, I looked at Instagram all like for half the day Saturday, and then I looked at, you know, real estate porn for the other, you know, four hours, <laughs> and that sense of, you know how do you kind of create greater overlap between what you really care about and how you are living your life and then sort of moving forward, my favorite expression, but, you know, okay, so what are you going to do this week? Like, what are you going to do tomorrow that, you know, that will sort of help you do that? And I think having, when we can close that gap between our intentions and our actions, you know, by you know, by actually like setting a time or a place or, you know, when am I going to do that? And I think this questionnaire sort of makes you think that way. Like you're sort of closing that intention-action gap. I hope.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I haven't thought about it this way, but I think that's right. It sort of makes people think, every question makes you think, what am I actually doing all day? Does it correspond to this answer in any way? Yeah. 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 No,
2: you've uh, you've embodied for us today, uh, Samantha, that, capacity to really think rigorously and to think without preconceived notions about about the way we live our lives, about the way we are toward and, and in the world, even when we're in confinement. And it was just a joy to talk with you. Thank you for being here. Yeah,
0: thank you so much. and Nice to meet you.
1: Thank you. I hope to meet you in, in
0: person. Exactly. Thank you so much.
1: Bye. 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 Take care.